I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. Maya Moore and Jonathan Irons couldn't have been more different when they met through her godparents in 2007. She was an Olympic gold medalist and star of the WNBA. He was behind bars, serving a 50-year sentence for burglary and assault. Today, they are Mr. and Mrs. Irons. Maya Moore Irons officially announced her retirement from basketball on January 16th. Jonathan Irons got his conviction overturned, thanks to efforts by Maya. They've written about it all in their new book, Love and Justice, a story of triumph on two different courts. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on January 19th, Maya and Jonathan talk about how they met, why she worked so hard to prove his innocence, and the need for transparency in convictions. It's not necessarily the, the, the easiest way when you have transparency, but it's the safest way to ensure that the right thing can be done. Just like we had transparency on Jonathan's case, and when light was put on it, the right thing was done. And so if anybody is running away from transparency, that's generally a red flag Mm. that there might not be the best practices going on. Maya, let me start before we get into the book. You took a break from pro basketball to work on Jonathan's case full time on Monday, MLK Day. You officially announced your retirement from the game. How hard was it to make that decision? Well, my journey through my pro career was uh, an unexpected ride. I think uh, as the years were building and I was growing and maturing and just continuing to figure out what matters most to me in my life, I was sensing uh, a need to shift my presence from the full-time pro space to being more rooted at home, to have um, a rhythm that allowed me to really rest and create some more space for the deep work that I was desiring and that was to come. And so much of that deep work was centered around Jonathan's fight for freedom. So it wasn't hard in a sense that I wasn't wrestling with um, should I or shouldn't I. Um, I think it was just hard in the sense of how do I do this well? Jonathan, you've done interviews and documentaries about your experience in prison, but why was it important for you to get your thoughts, put your story out on paper in Love and Justice? Uh, Because I I wanted it to be a record of uh, what happens when you don't get the criminal justice system right. Um, I could have easily just, and I, I, I was even tempted to just go crawl up under rock and just hide and just uh, mope in my pain, but I know that wasn't going to help or change anything. And, and, and I, I believe that what happened to me is, is much bigger than me. And hopefully by putting this story out there, it's going to cause some systemic changes and, or at least generate a conversation because there are some things that are broken that have to change in our system. Mm-hmm. You know, Maya, let's go to, let's go back to the beginning. Um, You met Jonathan in 2007 through your godparents, Reggie and Sherry Williams. Uh, Regarding your first face-to-face encounter, Jonathan wrote, quote, she's probably going to be afraid of me. She's going to judge me and think I'm guilty. What was your first impression of Jonathan? Honestly, when I saw him, I was surprised at how alive 
he was. Um, I was, I didn't necessarily have a ton of expectations because I, I had never been into a maximum security prison before, but because I was with my godparents, I did have a sense of kind of safety and peace, but I was just approaching him as this person that, um, was trying to persevere through an injustice. And so I was, you know, very open-minded. I was just engaging with him. We even had such a good time, um, uh, connecting that we were, we ended up playing a game of checkers. Why oh, you got to bring that up? I will not tell you how the checkers game. The ended, world already know it. It's all it's in, in the, the book. book. It's it's it, you can read it yourself. But, and you ain't played me since then. Okay, That's I crazy. won the checkers game. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, Jonathan. So, so Jonathan, I'm going to read your words. Word, read your words back to you. Um, um, Maya hugged me and looked directly in my eyes. She didn't look away, not for a second. And she spoke to me in a warm and loving way. Something inside my heart stirred because I wasn't used to this sort of kindness. Talk more, talk more about that. Why were you so surprised by how Maya treated you? Well, I mean, like prison is a, uh, a very harsh place. Like it's just, that's just, it's just the nature of that place. Um, and and the longer you're there, the more people forget about you, and you 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 learn pretty fast that you're you're a number, and that's what's most important about you. I I didn't even own my own flesh, and I was I, I belong and and was a possession of the state, and I was used to people coming in, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Oh, you're in prison for a while, and then leaving, or looking at me, oh, you're in prison. You you got to be guilty if you're in here. You did something because that's a, that's a common thought, but Maya. She looked me in my eye and was just like, I, I'm not concerned about that. I just, you're a person to me. And it just, I wasn't used to that. And I was in disbelief and I was just taken aback. And I was just so, so blessed in that moment that, that she actually saw me because I had not been used to that at all. You know, we need to remind folks, you, Jonathan, you were a kid when yeah. you were convicted of a crime you did not commit. You were 16 or 17? I was 16 and I had to fight grown men in a maximum security prison for my and, survival. Mm -hmm. And you had been in prison how many years by the time you met Maya? What year was it? What did you mean? So it was, it was around 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Right. Around yeah. 10 years. And I wanted to bring up that, that timetable so people could so more fully understand. Yeah. So people could more fully understand why you were so you were so moved by how warm and open and friendly Maya was when when you met her. Um, you also write in the book, Jonathan, and you were talking about this in the clip that we just showed um, in your interview on ABC with Robin Roberts. I believe you were talking about the Bible, but and correct me if I'm wrong. But you write, I opened up the Bible and started skimming through it. I was still skeptical. I didn't believe God could help me, nor did I comprehend the valuable weapon in my hands, a weapon my grandmother had given to me, but Granny knew. Talk about the, the importance of God and your faith in this time when you are a child in prison, as you just said, fighting grown men for your own survival. Well, there's a there's one one of my uh, favorite verses in the Bible. I believe it's uh, Psalms 27:10. It says, "When your mother and your father forsake you, the Lord will take you up." Like I was, I was in 
basically the lion's den, surrounded by like very, uh, very dangerous people. And like, I remember some of the things my grandmother had taught me uh, from an early age, we would sit and read uh, chapters out of the Bible and we would talk about it. And as I was going through that, she continued to just tell me, are you praying? Are you reading Psalms? Are you reading Proverbs? And, and I would tell her, yeah, uh, I would, I would sit and find myself just reading in it and then just like, man, is this, is this legit? Is this, is this serious? And the more and more I got into it, the more and more I saw things that just made me not look away and say, I, I can't disbelieve this. This I'm seeing things that are playing out in my life that I know only that they can only be God. And like I went through experiences and had encounters, I believe, in there, and like in solitary confinement, that just that just made me know that He was for me and with me and protected me through that. Mm-hmm. And I, there is nothing in me that could say, "Man, God ain't real and He ain't for me," because I have seen and tasted, mm-hmm. and I know He's real. Mm-hmm. And so, Maya, go ahead, Maya. No, I was saying I was going to say when as I was getting to know Jonathan and hearing some of his stories and some of his testimonies, one of the things that shocked me um, was hearing about the men that discipled him inside and took the time to nurture him and to guide him and to show him who God was and how to be a man of God uh, on top of his relationship with my great uncle as a faithful man um, to nurture and love Jonathan, to help him become the man he is today, Mm -hmm. which just is another reminder of how important it is for the people who claim to be followers of Jesus to actually do that and live that and be that because there's, there's, that's the plan. That's the way the world changes. That's the way life happens and healing happens is through people doing and being uh, who we were created to be. Yes. Hey, Jonathan is one of those men Maya was in prison that Maya is talking about. Is that Hugh Flowers? Yeah, you, you Flowers is definitely one of them. He was a VIC that would come in, and he he was he was the first man that believed in me, and like told me that I was intelligent and and that I had value, and he inspired me to go to the library, and I lived in the library as a result, and he basically was my father figure for for so long, um, like he he, he brought me through, man, and, it, and there were other guys that were actually prisoners inside that that had faith and that would walk with me and teach me things and just you know share life with me uh but in a way that was that was uplifting and empowering for me in an environment like that because there's a tendency to just be frustrated and angry and just and just drove up uh but it's a blessing to have guys that just show you like yeah this is a bad situation but you need you need to hold your faith and you need to keep walking no matter what your circumstances are you can do this and they did that for me. There were many men, many good men. As you, as you write about Mr. Flowers, for the first time in my life, I was given confidence that I was intelligent, that I had value and worth. I believed that I had something inside me that could be built, that could be used for something bigger than myself. Um, yeah. the, the book starts, and I, I thought this was a, a, a fabulous way to start this book, to get to know each of you. You each write a chapter about your upbringing. And it starts with Jonathan, and then Maya, you tell your upbringing. I'm gonna do something counterintuitive. Jonathan, how would you describe Maya's upbringing? 
Um, I would I would describe Maya's uh upbringing as as wholesome because she was raised in a tribe of people. Like she she wasn't raised around her father, but there were people that surrounded her and and poured into her and and just embraced her. That's 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 part of our heritage. Like it, it takes a village. And that's what she had. And it's such a blade. And they're still surrounding her and still helping her. I can remember being in prison, hearing about the uh, the road trips where they would rent buses and go down to her games. You know, everybody in there fighting, are we there yet? Hollering, but they were going to see her games because they loved her and they supported her. And I, I know she needed that. But that was good. Mm-hmm. And Maya, how would you describe Jonathan's upbringing? Well, I think... Jonathan's upbringing was um, heartbreaking in a lot of ways, but also um, resilient. I think those those two words happening at the same time, because he was raised in poverty, he did not have um, the normal experience, what we would think of as a normal experience of of, of feeling safe and, and um, having his needs met. Um, consistently, uh, but he also had a rock in his granny yeah. to uh, show him, give him a glimpse, a very, a very large glimpse of what could be, what love is supposed to look like. But it, it built a resilience, I think, in Jonathan. Uh, but it also left him vulnerable. I think he experienced vulnerability uh, that children should not experience uh, because of his lack of resources and the way his family and the culture that he lived in had been broken um, through the generations, um, whether that was, you know, drugs or violence, um, lack of opportunity. Um, you know, we can talk much more about um, how that happens. But, um, but I also think he was a diamond in the rough, but he had it very rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. I mean, Jonathan, reading that, reading your words about your upbringing, was it just tore my heart out from the story about um, going to your friend's house that had um, that had a bathroom inside, um, and you had a, a a very evocative line where you said you and Granny were so poor you had to climb up to reach the poverty line. Um, let's talk about more broadly. Um, the criminal justice system. Um, you wrote that you dreamt of being uh, a police officer when you were a child, but you said the officers and detectives who arrested you at 16 neither read you your Miranda rights, nor had, there, were, there was no attorney present, no adult was present during your interrogation. Uh, and reading that reminded me of, that was the same thing that happened with the Central Park Five. And so I'm wondering, how has that influenced your views on policing in America today? Your experience? Well, I, I think uh, I think that I think there needs to be more checks and balances. I think uh, all interrogations it should be it, there should be legislative enactments put in place to require officers to record every interrogation, every interaction, so there can be there, there can be oversight and a record of what has happened. Because when you don't do that, there, we've seen too many times. Uh, or you see police officers playing evidence and then somebody's got it on phone and you on the phone recording it and you see it, but they write in the report something totally different. 
Uh, and I just I just think that it would be a good practice. But I will say this. We need police officers in our society. It's, 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 that's just the reality. And they do keep us safe. And I, and I respect them and I appreciate their service. But there are some of them that that take that job beyond the scope or the color of, of law that it should be. And we need to address those so that we can have a safer environment and have safer policing practices. You know, Maya, pick up on what Jonathan is talking about and also talk about um, what you're calling prosecutorial reform and how you're, what does that, what does that look like from your vantage point? And how are you doing that through the organization you, you founded called Win With Justice? Yes. So one of the biggest parts of our heart is really to put color behind some of these, uh, not slogans, but some of these words you hear and some of these systematic things and changes and this and that. And some people are hearing these cries for change, but not really understanding why a change is necessary because maybe your family and your life experience hasn't seen the devastation of what happens when these changes aren't made. And so sharing Jonathan's story, sharing our family's story will hopefully help people kind of settle into a place to have their perspective widened, to see what some of these um, unhealthy practices uh, and ways are doing. And so one of those ways is a culture that can be present in some prosecutor's offices that are simply about getting the conviction. Um, basically, whoever's on the other side, I'm just trying to beat them. Um, instead of really taking the time and the energy to look with a more restorative justice lens of saying, how can the other side, how can this community, taking account both sides and seeing what is needed for healing, for restoration, for, for justice, which also means going back and fixing mistakes that are a result of a non-perfect system. And so one of the aspects on our nonprofit Win With Justice that we love to highlight is an organization called For The People. And there's a tool in our, in our toolkit tab that, that helps people learn more about how there's initiatives, um, prosecutor-initiated um, uh, reforms uh, where they can go back um, and, and undo wrongful convictions and re-examine questionable convictions so that the prosecutors can be encouraged to, to have those checks and balances. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are good ideas out there. It's just a matter of, I think, shining a light for the whole community, not just the community that you're safe and comfortable in, but the whole human community around you if they're not, if we're not all safe and given tools to thrive, then what kind of community are we? What kind of America are we? When I go overseas and represent the United States and they put that gold medal around our neck, like what are we doing? What who are we really becoming? And so I just want us to to to, to open up our eyes to the least and the and the vulnerable and saying there's life down here. Mm -hmm. How can I use my privilege and my power? to pour it out, to uplift someone else. Because at the end of the day, we all need help. And we're all where we are because of the help we receive. That's right. 
Jonathan, you, you want to add anything more? No. Oh, she, <laughs> she said it. <laughs> she said it. <laughs> well, I'll, I will then move on to, uh, we have a question from the audience. This comes from Minnesota. It comes from Nina Andueza. She asks, having navigated the criminal justice system, what do you see as the biggest barriers to structural change? Uh, Jonathan, how about you You start in and Maya, you can pick up. Well, I, I, I would say this. Um, there is not enough people that are involved or aware of what's going on in these legislative sessions where these laws are passed. Um, for example, the Supreme Court has authorized prosecutors to basically to have immunity. They can literally get away with planning false evidence well, not necessarily, but presenting false a testimony, knowing knowing that it's false at a trial and convicting a person. Um, that should not be. There, there are no checks and balances you, for that for them. You, you can you, you can't hold them accountable short of them basically shooting someone in broad daylight. Um, I think uh, I think another barrier is the disparity between public defenders and prosecutors. Public defenders. They are, they are overworked and underfunded, and they just don't have enough resources. We're prosecutors. Like, yeah, they, they get a lot of cases. They work for a lot. But they have a whole police force and investigative agency that that's their job to just go out and do stuff. Where public defenders, they got to file a motion to get to get money, to get funding, to get a budget, to go get someone to, someone to hopefully investigate the case. Like, that's, that's a huge thing. Um, and I think another thing that, that that is a barrier is the states where conviction integrity units are not legislative law yet. They're just they're just basically a dog and pony show where they get funding and they get these grants, but they don't have the teeth by law to 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 actually over overview a case. And those those are some of the the, the major things that I'm thinking about off the top of my head that are barriers to to reform. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maya. I remember when Jonathan over the years was teaching me about some of these things um, and conviction integrity units are something that we share with the reader in the back of the book for more resources. Um, and it makes so much sense, right? In a checks and balances situation, you need to have units that are looking at the integrity of convictions to just be sure that you're sure that you're sure as best as you can that whatever human being you are determining the fate of is it's actually in line with justice and um, and again not just in in uh, a superficial way but actually in a way that's making a difference in communities. Um, yeah, I think a, a, just a culture of of transparency. Um, again, it's not necessarily the, the the easiest way when you have transparency, but it's the safest way to ensure that. Um, the right thing can be done. And so establishing systems and ways to create more transparency, just like we had transparency on Jonathan's case. And when light was put on it, the right thing was done. And so if anybody is running away from transparency, that's generally a red flag mm. that there might not be the best practices going yeah. on. Any, any politician, any per leader in your community who's running away from transparency or just general humanizing language mm -hmm. is probably not going to represent the best interests of humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, Maya, as I you know get to know your story and and listening to you too, especially talking about the the um, 
conviction um, um, integrity units. Um, when you met Jonathan, he was already 10 years in to a 50-year conviction. You meet him through your godparents. Uh, he's you know, professing, I didn't do this. What made you believe in his innocence? Great question. That's a super great question. Um, so with our story, I think it's hard sometimes for people to realize this. This this was a long journey. Um, again, Jonathan was in for 10 years before I met him. Um, my godparents had gotten to know him for almost two years before they introduced me to him. And Jonathan was so down and discouraged for a while when he first got arrested. And it took him some time to even get the life under him to start teaching himself law and fighting for his own freedom. Like he had to um, go through the pain, but then say, hey, I'm going to do something. And he he's brilliant. And he taught himself law and started to advocate for himself. And so after he got every year, he would get more and more clarity on what happened in his case because information was buried and hidden and not put in the light. But he did all he could to find more and more information. And the more you read the facts about his case, it was like, this is insane and messed up and wrong. And so we as lay people just like we didn't know what to do. We just kept trying to move forward. My godparents would visit him every weekend. Yeah. They're the real heroes in all of this. So just as everyone's talking about what Maya did, it's literally because of my godparents, Sherry and Reggie Williams, helping him, Jonathan working, doing resources, like sharing resources, just doing everything that they could. But um, I think the words were best said by one of the eyewitness experts we called in his evidentiary hearing that said, Jonathan's case could literally be a case study of what not to do with eyewitness procedure. Mm. Um, this, the appellate court uh, when they responded to the state of Missouri, when the state of Missouri was trying to prevent Jonathan from coming home, when the Supreme Court in Kansas City said, basically, stop it. This is egregious for so many reasons that th those are the reasons I believed him, because I saw the facts of the case. And then the more I got to know him, um, I, I, I saw like, oh, this is a serious person who has done his his, his research and his homework. And obviously just learning his character over the years, it just makes you fall in love with Jonathan and, and want to fight for him even more. That is a wonderful segue to the next question I was going to ask, which is how did it, how did this first meeting in 2007 go from, hey, how you doing to, hey, we're kind of like siblings to, hey, how you doing? I like you. Hey, what's your name? Your version of asking that question is my favorite. Story. Oh man. Well, I don't want to give away all the deets, but got to read the book. Yeah, there's some there's some more details in the book, but um yeah, I think there came a point where we had been walking with each other for so many years. We had, friends, we had known yeah, we had known each other and established a really great friendship for 6 years before we um started to be more honest about where we felt like we were headed. Um, and so our love story was super unorthodox. Jonathan was very conscious of wanting to protect me and not draw me into something that wasn't going to work out or be safe for me or good for me. 
And so he would always try to check in to make sure I was wanting to move forward with him and just to continue to stick with him. And every time he would, I would threaten him and say, don't you ask me that again. I'm here. <laughs> she threatened to cut me. She threatened to cut me. I was like, okay. It's just a little violence, not too much. Okay. <laughs> but, um, <sighs> yeah, he, uh, he, he, he broke the, he, I don't want to say it. You, you slipped up first, which again, you just got to read it in the book, yeah. but he slipped up <laughs> right. first and then, uh, got a little flirtatious. Got a little flirtatious, and you know, just again, you got to, you got to, got to read it in the book. Right, got to read it in the book. Um, but um, flirtation led to marriage, which led to little Jonathan Jr. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Uh, I love watching How old him is be he? A dad. How old is he now? He'll be a year, uh, February seventh. I can't even. I can't wow. even. Know where that year went. We need to get a grant to feed the child because he eating up everything. I don't know where he put it. He does, there's, I don't know very much, very many meals he's turned down. Ooh, he likes everything. <laughs> he is our pride and joy, our our love. Yeah. And Jonathan's one of his biggest dreams in life was to be a father. Yeah. So it's just so sweet. It's my greatest aspiration to be a good dad. Wow. Um. I want to end this end this conversation uh, on you, Jonathan. Um, you are a free man and have been since March 2020. Um, you have the opportunity to reclaim your identity. How would you define yourself today? Um, honestly, man, I would I would define myself as somebody, man, who's trying to put the pieces of his life together because. There's been a crater that's been blown in my life. And I am so thankful to have an army of people around me that love me and support me because it helps. It helps get through. But that, that pain is there. And, and I'm not gonna say, man, like every day is a good day. And like 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 I can forget about what happened and what I went through. But I wake up with her every morning. I get to kiss my baby every morning. And I get the I get hugs from my family. I've started a dog business and I always love dogs. My dog business is called Dogs We Trust LLC. And I get the love on them dogs. So I mean that's I'm I'm thankful for what I have, you know. Um I'm gonna end this interview before I start crying. Uh, <laughs> Y'all already um, all I'm gonna all I'm gonna say is Maya. Everybody should have a partner in their life who looks at them the way Jonathan looks at you. Maya Moore, Maya Moore Aarons, Jonathan Aarons, Maya Moore Irons, Jonathan Irons, authors of Love and Justice, a story of triumph on two different courts. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.